The scripture passage this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right, it is now the third week of Advent. And that means that Christmas is just around the corner, right? Just in a very few days, we are going to be celebrating the birth of Christ. But the birth of Christ is not the beginning of the story of Christ. And Paul, writing to us in the book of Philippians, wants us to know that. He wants us to recognize that the birth of Christ is part of a greater journey. It is a part of this grand journey downwards. Theologians call it the humiliation of Christ. We just read the question about it in the Westminster Catechism. That is what we're going to be looking at today, the humiliation of Christ. Really important doctrine in the church. But as we look at the doctrine, uh, what I want us to see is just how far down Jesus went for us. And what I hope that's going to happen is as we study that, as we start to see that, we're going to learn how that humiliation connects with ourselves. I hope that as we see how far down Jesus went, it will make us a humble people ourselves. Because this is not just a doctrine. It's not just something to teach us who Christ is, but it is supposed to be the mindset of all of us. It's supposed to be the mindset of every person in the church, how we relate to one another, how we relate to everybody outside of these walls. And so today as we dive in, I want us to see three things. I want us to see first the trouble with humility. Then I want us to see the trajectory of Jesus. And then finally, I want us to look at the transforming power of a lowly Christ. Okay, let's start with the trouble with humility. Uh, This is an important passage. You've probably heard it if you've been at the church uh, uh, many times before. It is a passage, one of the foundational passages, to tell us about Jesus' journey from eternity down to earth. And so uh, you could say this is deep theology. But what prompted this moment of deep theology was a very practical concern. Paul writes about this doctrine because he's trying to illustrate how Christians are meant to relate to each other. And so in verse 3, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let's see if we can get this going. Okay, here we go. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, 
in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, it says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So this passage tells us a lot about humility. And one of the things that stands out as you go through this passage is that humility is costly. Humility is costly. At the core, Paul is telling us here that humility requires that we overlook our own interests for the sake of somebody else's interests. He says that humility is the opposite of selfish ambition. It's the opposite of vain conceit. The Greek behind that word is empty glory. It's it's the opposite of seeking your own empty glory, wanting your own glory, wanting yourself to be in the center of everything. Humility instead requires that we look away from ourselves, that we see the other person that we're dealing with instead, that we look at their needs, at their wishes, that they look to their benefit over our own benefit. And honestly, as a pastor, humility is kind of a difficult subject to teach on because, well, I think humility is a virtue everyone believes they possess. Have you thought about that? I I think everyone believes that they possess the trait of humility. I have never met anyone who says, you know, one thing about me is I'm very arrogant. I, I am just full of pride. I am better than everyone, and I know it. No, we don't, we don't think that way. Most of us, we think, I, we have a pretty fair estimation of myself. Uh, not too high, but not too low either. And, and in our culture, we don't like arrogant people. We hear stories about arrogant people, and we think those people are jerks, right? Just a few weeks ago, there was a story in the news about one of the famous late-night talk show hosts, and he had gotten banned from a restaurant after repeated offenses of going into this place and just yelling at the waitstaff, being angry with them over silly things, a, a flake of egg yolk in his only egg white omelet, things like that. We hear those stories, and we say, man, that guy is arrogant. He's prideful. I would never treat somebody like that. But real humility, it's more than that. It's not just some internal assessment of ourselves. What Paul wants us to see is that that humility is the product, it's seen through costly behaviors. Humility is active. Humility means not only thinking about ourselves modestly when we receive a compliment saying, oh, shucks, you know, I'm nobody special. It's not just thinking about ourselves like that, but it's actually acting in a humble way. Uh, I can give you, unfortunately, kind of a negative example (laughs) from my own life this week. I had a little scuffle with my neighbor over text message this week. Um, He was wanting me to do something, and I felt like he was hassling me too much about it. Um, and we didn't really see eye to eye. And so I, I ended up, I did what he wanted me to do. But in the process, I let him know I was not happy about it. Right? And in the aftermath of this little exchange, I just I felt the tension. 
you know? I realized that, that if I had run into him on the street that day, it would have been weird. It would have been an awkward exchange. And so I had this choice in that moment, you know, sitting in the aftermath of that. Do I leave things where they are? Do I stick to my own view of what was right in that situation? Because, look, I'm pretty sure I was right in that situation. (laughs) So do I just let the tension hang? Just let it dissipate over the next months or years? Or do I let go of my own rightness and apologize? Say I'm sorry for being rude. I had to ask, was I willing (laughs) to stop thinking about my own interests? Like this passage says, was I willing to overlook my own interests and instead think about the interests of others? Was I willing to put him before me? And that's never an easy decision for us to make. That's a lot harder than saying, aw shucks, when somebody says you're great. It's, it's easy to feign modesty, but, but it's a whole other thing to live a humble life. Paul is calling us to live in costly sacrifice for the sake of his kingdom. To live with the attitude that says, it's okay for you to get the W, for me to take the L. I'm going to lay down on this one. Now, I'm going to say, let me be clear. This isn't a call always for us to just let people sin and, and let that go on unaddressed, right? He's not calling us to be a doormat. He's not calling us to get pushed around and let people walk all over us. But he is calling us to re-rank our value system. Because by default, we are thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about what we want. We're thinking about our needs. We're thinking about our opinions. We're thinking about our own perspectives. We are in our heads thinking about ourselves. And he says it is our duty as those who follow Christ to consider the interests of others. And then to live accordingly. To be willing to lose so that the whole community can win. And that's the trouble with humility. It's it's a virtue that we all appreciate. We love to see humble people, and most of us think we have this virtue. But humility requires action. It requires self-sacrifice. It requires, in those moments, uh, that it requires to, to really live out humble lives. So how do we do that? How do we become truly humble people? Well, for the ultimate case of somebody who lost so that others could win, we need to look at Jesus. We need to look at the the trajectory of Jesus here. Now, this is a theme that lies at the heart of Advent. Advent is from the Latin word that means coming, um, and it is a season where we think about how messed up this world is and how desperately we need Jesus to come and set things right. We need a savior. And I'll admit, usually, you know, right now everybody has their Christmas decorations out. A lot of my neighbors, they have their little nativity scenes set out. And and when I see those in the beautiful display, usually looking at the little baby Jesus, I get caught up in that cheerfulness of that scene. 
The good news of great joy, that part of, of the Christmas message. The peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's what I'm thinking about when I see those bright lights. Um, but this week, as I've th- been reading through Philippians and thinking about this sermon, I have thought about that baby in a different way. Instead of thinking about him through the, the earthly perspective, through the eyes of Mary or the shepherds or the wise men and what his birth meant for them, I was thinking about it through the eyes of that baby. Because here's what Paul says that moment meant for Jesus. It says, Jesus who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So, Jesus is God, right? That's what we believe. Jesus is God. And what is God like? Westminster tells us that God is infinite, that he is eternal, that he is unchangeable, that he is the embodiment, that he is wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. That is who he is. Now, what's a baby like by comparison? A baby is, the baby knows nothing. (laughs) A baby is as fragile as you could possibly be. A baby is completely dependent on others. A baby is constantly changing, right? Every minute a baby is changing. When God took on flesh and became a man, Paul says that he became nothing. Our passage, it says, he took on the very nature of a servant, meaning he took on true human nature. Do you ever think about that? That means that Jesus, when he was lying in that manger, he was not some kind of super baby, right? He was not laying in the crib with this fully formed, all-knowing mind, thinking, oh, I can't wait till it's not, I'm old enough that it won't be weird that I'm talking. You know, he's, he's not saying, I can't wait to tell them that, that I'm the son of God and that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive all their sins. No, he was a real human being. The very nature that we have. Just like us, he had to grow up. He had to gradually develop and become aware of who he was and what he had come to do. When I think about that nativity scene, I... I just, I cannot begin to comprehend what an enormous step down that was. What a tremendous disparity there was. This baby in the manger in his very first moments of human awareness. He had just gone from eternity to being restricted inside of time. He had just been infinite And now he's finite. He went from being all-knowing to now being driven by an infant's basic desires for food and warmth. What a step down. But that's just one step. Do you realize that throughout his entire life, 
Jesus kept stepping down. He was the king of the universe. But he wasn't born into the royal family. He was born into poverty. He was born into a life, like we read a minute ago, that was difficult. That was worse than most of us in this room have ever experienced. Just the the basic day-to-day reality of his life. And he stepped down even further than that. As Jesus grew, as he developed, he also discovered the depths of human sin. He had to feel the weight of temptation, the, the, the frailty of the human body and its weakness. He had to struggle under it. He was the lawgiver. The law was basically a description of him in his holiness and righteousness and justice, and now he is under the law. So he had to face in his life the full onslaught of evil constantly trying to pull him away from God. At the end of his life, the Gospels tell us that the struggle was so extreme that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he literally sweat blood under the stress of it, under the burden of obedience to God's will. And he kept going down. Jesus spent his life proclaiming the message of truth, teaching the law of God, proclaiming salvation for the world. But you know what happened, right? Instead of people listening, he was despised. He was rejected. He was abandoned, even by his closest friends at the end. He was mocked. People spat on him. They called him a liar. They called him a a blasphemer. And he kept going down. Jesus lived a triumphant life. He did it. He did the thing no one else could do. He lived a life of total innocence and righteousness before God. And yet, he was condemned to death by an earthly judge. A crowd of people demanded that a criminal be released instead of pardoning him. And he kept going down. Do you know, in his life, Jesus, he was stripped of every dignity. And even eventually, he was literally stripped of his clothing and nailed to a cross. It was a punishment that was reserved for unimportant criminals. It was considered a cursed death. And while he hung there, lifeless, his body was pierced, and eventually even the blood was emptied out of him. And he kept going down. They laid him penniless in a borrowed tomb. And he remained there, the giver of life, under the power of death. For three days. That is the path of the baby in the manger. Down from heaven to earth to a miserable life to a worse death. Down from perfect holiness 
to constantly battling against evil, down from righteousness to a cross where the full wrath of God was poured out and placed upon his shoulders. Down from eternal life to the dead end of death. And why did he do that? Because he was looking not to his own interests, but to yours and to mine. He went down that low so that all of us could be lifted high with him. So that no one could ever think that they were beyond the reach of his redemption. No matter how low you are, he has gone lower. He did it because that's what we needed. Because we're selfish and arrogant and prideful. And that is, what, that is the kind of sacrifice required to redeem us. That is the trajectory of Jesus. Paul says, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is a challenge for us. But when you know the trajectory of Jesus firsthand, a new power emerges. It's the transforming power of the lowly Christ. So here's something that we might want to consider right now. Just the basic gospel message. It tells us that because Jesus became a man, because he fought our battles and he won, because he endured our trials and he triumphed, because he bore the penalty of our sin, because he did all of this perfectly, it means that everyone who will come to him, everyone who would call him Savior, well, they would we get to receive that record as our own. We get to count his perfection as our perfection. That's what happens when we place our faith in Christ. We just went through this terrible journey down, down, down. Each step more difficult than the one before it. And as you think about how impossibly hard that struggle must have been for him each day to live that life, to keep going down. The, the, the amazing thing is that if he is your savior, that same record has been given to you by faith. It's just like you did. That is why God became man. He was humiliated so that you could be exalted. We didn't deserve it. We were in the wrong. We were foolish. We were arrogant. We were prideful. But he came for us out of love, and he delivered us by laying down his own life. He was humiliated so that we could be exalted. And so in light of that theological truth, that this record has been given to you by faith, let's go back to verse 5. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, so we just dug into 
what that mindset was. We dug into these verses a little bit, and maybe you're thinking now, wow, that's a lot. How can I possibly live like that? How can I have that mindset with, with my spouse? How can I have that mindset with my family members? How could I have that mindset with the people in this room, the people sitting next to me in the pews? How on earth can I do this? And the answer is, you can't do this. There is no power on earth that can make you do this. This one, it really does require the power of God. It takes the Holy Spirit working in your life so powerfully that it begins to transform you. We need a power from outside of ourselves if we're going to live a life of Christ-like humility. We can't do this on our own. See, the world that we live in is always telling you the exact opposite, is it not? The world is telling you to stand up for yourself, to assert your rights, to claim what's yours. But Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, we, we can only live a life like this, uh, this kind of humble life, when we are constantly being renewed when we have the mind of Christ. We can only live like this when God impresses on each of our hearts the depths of our sin. When we're able to really see how arrogant we are, that we're not humble people, actually. That when push comes to shove, we're, we're kind of prideful. We're, we're kind of arrogant. When we see that, when, when the Holy Spirit finally enables us to see that all that self-righteousness and that arrogance and that pride, those are not just small, acceptable sins that everybody has that we can brush aside, but in fact, those are the very sins that required his blood to be poured out. When we realize that he had to go down that far because that's how far down we were. That's where we live. And he did. He did that. He, re he redeemed us. He went down that low for us. And now, he sends his spirit so that we can go and do the same thing for other people. See, only when we know firsthand that God has given himself for us, will we be able to go and do that for others. So let me go and, and read the beginning of this passage one last time. Verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's hard. Sometimes doing that in real life, it feels like dying, doesn't it? Sometimes giving up where you really want to win, it feels like death. It feels impossible. But because Jesus died for us, we now have the power to die for others. And, and just practically speaking, if we really did that, 
If we started to live that way inside of the church, how amazing would it be? How powerful would that be? Think about what that would look like if we really started to do that here. If we really started to live like that. You know, in in Timothy, Paul says, Christ came for sinners, and I'm the worst one. Can you imagine what that would mean if we all lived that way on a daily basis, believing that we're the worst of sinners? Well, practically, I think here's what it would look like. If you've got a problem with somebody in this room, if you're in conflict with somebody that you love, you go to them and and you say, I'm not going to cling to my own rightness. Instead, you can say, you know, brother, sister, I know that no one here is a bigger sinner than me. I'm the worst. But the other day, we had this conflict, something happened, it hurt me, and I need to come and talk to you about it. But I know I'm the worst sinner here. So maybe that's where we can start. Or you can say, like I had to say the other day to my neighbor, hey, I was being a jerk, <laughs> and, and I don't really have an excuse for it, but I'm sorry. And here's the amazing thing. If you do that, and the person who you're dealing with is also a Christian, and they're coming, and they're also doing that, saying, no, I'm actually the worst sinner. Well, what happens in that moment is beautiful. What happens in that moment is this humble God-honoring reconciliation. It's a place where you really start to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your midst. When that kind of thing happens, it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. That is something that belongs as a gift to the church. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our midst. And you know, when people see that happening, they'll see us and say, well, you know, these aren't just people who go to church. These people are disciples. These people are are following Jesus. These people are walking in step with him and being transformed by him. These people are getting ready for the day when he is coming again. Advent is calling us to live in that expectation. Some of us were preparing to, to be with family members in the next few in the next week or so for holiday celebrations. Maybe this will be a great opportunity to put some of this into practice. It calls us to live in expectation because Jesus has come and he's coming to us every day in his spirit, transforming us and renewing us and empowering us. And he will come again. So come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this call to humility.